Welcome to the Keeper Cup Podcast. I'm Chad Young, joined as always by Pete Ball. And after a quick break last week to to tee up our listener leagues, we're back to our positional previews, and we're going to hit up outfield today, Pete. Yeah, I'm excited, Chad, as we were just chatting. It's kind of a, I mean, it's the deepest position, and yet, because of five outfield leagues, one of the most thin positions, in my opinion. So, should yield some interesting conversation. Yeah, I think that, that you know, the number of outfielders is super interesting, because I'm looking at, like, I've got two auto news slow drafts going on right now we're recording this by the way on saturday february 19th so you're not going to hear it for like a week so sorry my drafts are probably over not that you really care but uh <laughs> i do have two drafts going on one of them is ours one of us are is the auto new keeper league or auto new listener league that we started and the other is a, a league that's been going for a few years and in both of them i'm like oh i love my outfield and then all of a sudden i've got like six or seven outfielders and I still need like two or three more in an auto new league to really have the depth I want. And it doesn't look that pretty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like, oh man, now it's really tough. So yeah, it's it's a weird position in that way where like, I don't know. We talked about this last week on the episode when Adam was on with us, like in a Yahoo league where you need three outfielders, it's like, I'm just not drafting outfielders because I can wait forever and find three outfielders I like. Five is hard. Yeah, it really is. It's that big of a difference. And I think that's right where that line of demarcation is where people's fourth and fifth outfielders are are going to feel thin. And that's why I, in this particular auction, I wanted to spend early. I feel like I, I didn't necessarily overspend on Eloy and Ketel Marte, but I I definitely didn't get a deal on them. And that's just because I, it was, I had to bite the bullet on my first three outfield spots or it was going to get ugly real fast. Yeah, looking at your team in that you've got Trying to see, you, yeah, you you spent on Eloy, twenty seven on Eloy, twenty seven on Catel Marte, uh, and then you've got a two dollar Will Myers, you got a five dollar Lane Thomas, you got a ten dollar Jared Kelnick, a seven dollar Jesus Sanchez. Your only catcher so far is Dalton Varsho, but he could flex over to outfield as needed. A two dollar Nick Senzel. Oh, and Senzel, are you? Did you add? Sen- oh yeah, you just did you just add Senzel? No, he was. Uh... He kind of like flew under the radar in the auction. I, I think I wrapped him up yesterday. Got it. Yeah. So, I mean, I, and I think like if you look at my team, I, I spent early on outfield there. I'm, I think my outfield might be a little, it's, it's a different shape than yours, I would say. So I spent on uh, a $28 Giancarlo Stanton, a $21 Josh Bell, a $19 Christian Yelich, who is not my favorite to have spent on, but this is a four by four league and an on-base percentage leagues. Yelich has a much higher floor than he does in other formats. Um, $13 Ian Happ, $14 Brandon Nimmo, who again, on base percentage league, very, very happy with that. Uh, and then I've got, uh, a $3 Dominic Smith and $9 Max Kepler. So I, I feel pretty good about that outfield. Um, I do have a $26 Brandon Lau who has outfield eligibility, but, uh, I don't know about you, but in this draft, I'm having a hard time with middle infield. Like I have Lau, I have Adamus, and I have a twelve dollar Brendan Rogers, and now I'm like, that's my out, that's my middle infield, and I there's like I feel like there's nobody left. Yeah, I so I kind of went at it hard because uh, look, this is my first time playing four by four, and so I wanted to see what kind of advantage I could get at the middle infield positions, especially since one of the things that middle infield is most known for, obviously, is stolen bases, and stolen bases don't matter for four by four. So I went 
hard after slugging percentage, figuring that could help my team differentiate itself from the pack. And so I, I don't know how many middle infielders I have. I mean, I got a few. So Cattell Marte, obviously, could play second base. Then I've got Chisholm. I've got uh, Javi Baez, Corey Seager, and Nick Senzel. So it's not deep, but I feel like I went after the high-end talent, especially in Seager, $31. Yeah, and you have you at least have three guys you can rely on. Like, not even counting Marte. Assuming you use Marte in the outfield. Right. You've got Baez, Seager, and Chisholm. Like, they're going to play... Seager's had injury issues in the past, but he's been healthy recently. So like you're pretty safe there. And then again, you can flex Marte over as needed. Like you pick up another outfielder. I've got Lau, who I feel good about Adamus, who I feel good about, but we're still looking at his sort of his first full season as a, as a star, hopefully. Yeah. And then Brendan Rogers, who I do not feel good about. <laughs> like he built a little <laughs> bit. Uh, and so I've got to figure out who, who do I, who can I pick up that can allow me to comfortably back up those guys? And the reality is I need a, well, I guess I don't need a shortstop because, because I think Rogers plays both. So it could be either. Okay. Well, anyways, we're not here to talk about that draft. We will have to find time to talk about that draft once it is complete, which is probably going to be at least a few more days. Uh, But let's get back into the outfield. So the other positions we've done so far, we have done our top 10 at each position because outfield is deeper. uh, We're going to do our top 20. Um, So I'm going to read off the top 20 outfielders from Pete and the top 20 outfielders from me. And I am just now realizing that Pete, you've got two, you, you don't have a number 12 and you have two 16s. So I'm just going to assume they're in order and hope that that's right. So here yeah, we that's go. gotta be <laughs> number one, Fernando Tatis Jr. I feel like some people might forget that he played a lot of outfield last year, but he is an outfielder as of right now for fantasy. Number two is Soto. Number three, Ronald Acuna Jr. Mike Trout at four, Bryce Harper at five, Mookie Betts at six, Luis Robert at seven, Kyle Tucker at eight, Jordan Alvarez at nine, Aaron Judge at ten. So that rounds out your top 10. And then the bottom half here, we got Eloy Jimenez at 11. Cedric Mullins listed at 13, but I'm calling him 12. Byron Buxton at 13. Jared Kelnick at 14. Julio Rodriguez at 15. Cody Bellinger, 16. Then Teoscar Hernandez, Nick Castellanos, Tyler O'Neill, and Christian Yellick rounding out your top 20. Now, a lot of names there. Here, here's mine, and we're going to I'll try to sort of point out some overlap uh we both have tatis and soto as one two our three four five you have acuna trout harper i've got acuna harper trout we can probably talk about that group but it's a good group uh six seven eight you have bets robert tucker i have tucker bets robert so Robert, Luis Robert. I'm pronouncing his name differently every time which is not good <laughs> uh so again very very similar um then I go with Mullins at nine, Jordan Alvarez at 10, Aaron Judge at 11, O'Neill at 12, Teoscar Hernandez at 13, George Springer at 14. He's the first guy I have on my list that you don't. Buxton at 15, Eloy Jimenez at 16, Nick Castellanos at 17. And then my bottom three are all guys you don't have. Catel Marte, Randy Rosarena, and Trent Grisham. So sort of 
summarize that a little bit, there are 16 players we both have on our lists. Those 16 players are Tatis, Soto, Acuna, Harper, Trout, Tucker, Betts, Robert, Mullins, Alvarez, Judge, O'Neal, Teoscar Hernandez, Buxton, Eloy, and Castellanos. However, I think you and I would both agree that while we have 16 players who overlap, there's a couple of those guys, and I think I think Teoscar Hernandez and Nick Castellanos are the two who are less clear than the others. That those other 14 names are are say very clear. We may not have them in the same order, but they definitely belong in the top 20. They'd be in anybody's top 20. And, and that seems like a sort of a tier to itself. I mean, it's, it, there's tiers within that tier, but that, that's a tier to itself, would you say? Yeah, so there's, there's two conversations at play here. One is tiers themselves, which I agree with. And, and that's I think this is why I had such a hard time coming up with my top 20 in general, let alone my top 16, where like I left George Springer off my list now it, we're talking keeper leagues springer's dealt with a ton of injuries he's over 30 like i think i'm right rightful in in considering having him off and, and ultimately not having him on there but tiers are important because i don't view those guys in my rankings like 16 through 20 or 15 14 through 20 as like noticeably better than springer as a matter of fact if i all have them in the same tier i'm probably going to just wait until i get that last player in the tier who in some keeper leagues might be george springer so i could look hypocritical here but to bring it back, I agree with on Castellanos. It definitely is like he's I, Castellanos and Teoski, if we wanted to put them in a tier of their own, agreed, especially since we don't know where Castellanos is going. And no matter where he ends up, it's not going to be as good as, as Cincinnati. But I actually like Teoscar Hernandez quite a bit. I, I, I think I have him pretty comfortably um, in that top 20 for sure. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have Teoscar in that top 20. You had him at where are you I'm much slower than you yeah and i've got him at at 14 so i actually or 13 actually i have him at 13 so i actually have him higher than you i just think i i had like i had i had teoscar and springer at 13 and 14 and while and now i'm saying like oh they don't necessarily belong with that you know some guys even like Eloy jimenez is behind them at, at uh 16 Buxton's behind them at 15. I think for me, there are re- like, and I could talk a little bit about why I put those two ahead of them, but I was also, I don't know. I would have been less surprised. Like it would have been easier for me to have moved those guys out of my top 20 than it would have been to move a guy like Buxton or Eloy out. And the reason for that, and also the reason why Buxton and Eloy are a little lower is risk versus reward trade-off, right? So like the reward on a, on, I mean, Buxton in particular, right, is just through the roof, right? I mean, uh, especially if Buxton, five by five. Yeah, he puts together a full, healthy season this year, and he's a first round pick next year, easily. Uh, let alone, you know, a top twenty outfielder. Teoscar and Springer, like, I don't think there's much either of them could do to be going in the first round next year. Like, I don't see that path forward for either of those two guys. However. Buxton could also play most of the season, still have injury issues, and fall off quite a bit from where he was last year, and all of a sudden not necessarily be a top twenty outfielder. And and you know, he'd end up being the kind of guy who goes in the top twenty outfielders in drafts. But everyone's like, "Oh man, you really want to take the risk on Buxton, <laughs> right?" <laughs> Whereas I think Teoscar and Springer are going to be in this group next year. 
And I just think like they're going to be in the back half of the top 20. And that's just sort of where they're going to be. And that's fine. And so, and same thing with Illoy with Buxton, where it's like the, the potential for Illoy is still sort of off the charts, but I, I'm not as, I'm not as confident in it. So I end up in this weird position where like, if I wanted to get more aggressive with upside guys, and we'll talk a little bit about like Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez in a little bit. If I want to get more aggressive with them, like Springer would be easier to move off my list than Buxton or Eloy, but I still put Springer ahead of them. Does that make sense? No, yeah, that makes sense. It's like those those there's con, pros and cons to each one of these guys, and and at some point, even though the cons are extremely different, they kind of balance each other out, and so we end up somewhere happily in the middle, which is again why I prefer tiers um, for for this kind of exercise, especially for outfield. Yeah, I mean tiers is definitely the way to go. You've got to be, I, I think. Like I've been posting my uh, auto new positional rankings over at Fangraphs, and I, I'm I used to post dollar values. Like I used to literally have a a list that would say like Nick Castellanos twenty one dollars, this player twenty dollars, this guy eighteen dollars. And what I came to realize was like, first of all, the projections and my guesses and everything else like they're not precise enough to support a dollar amount like that. Uh, they are much better for saying like, okay, Cassianos comes out at $21. That could be 21. It could be 25. It could be 15. Like there's a range. Uh, but also, like you said, especially in five by five or any kind of Roto tiers, like how your team shapes out has a big influence within a tier, right? Like um, I'm just going to pull up my, my list I've got a, a draft board I'm using for TGFBI and we're doing some mock drafts right now. And so I happen to have it in front of me, but like on my list, I have uh, Ian Happ, Miles Straw and Dylan Carlson all right next to each other on my rankings. Which one of those three I take <laughs> has very little to do with the order I have them on my list. Because by the time I get to that part of a draft, like maybe I need speed. And if I need speed, like all of a sudden, you know, Straw jumps up a couple rounds ahead of Hap or Carlson because I need that speed. If I don't, and I've got a, a team that's that's pretty solid and I want upside, I might go with Carlson because I think he might have the highest upside of the three. I mean, so you end up with a, a I don't know, another guy. I have Hunter Renfro also. There, there's, a, there's a guy in between Renfro and Carlson, but I've got Renfro right in that group too. If I need power, I'll go with Renfro over the other three, even though he's a step lower than them in my ranking. So I think those, those tiers allow you the flexibility to sort of like you said before about Springer, wait and take the last guy in a tier because right. that's going to be the best value or to, if you're going to jump in a tier, if you're like, look, there's three outfielders left in this tier and I, but I need an outfielder. So I'm going to take one. Now you can take the one who fits your team instead of feeling beholden to, like, oh, this guy is ranked number 37 on my list. And this guy's ranked number 39 on my list. So I guess I'll take the guy who's 37. Like, that may not be the case. So uh, that that's, I think, uh, for me, a little less true at the top. Like, in my top, let's call it 100 overall, I I'm much more likely to just sort of go in order, right? So I'm pulling up within my top 100. I'm looking to see if I have any, like, runs of outfielders within my top 100. Teoscar Hernandez, Aaron Judge, Tyler O'Neill, and George Springer are all in sort of a tight group in my top hundred. This is this is not for redraft, by the way. This is my my just sort of standard league, uh, so it doesn't necessarily match. But I've got those four in a very tight group. Which one of those am I taking? 
I'm probably just taking the one I like best because if I'm taking them, I'm taking them in like the third round or the fourth round. And at that point, I don't even necessarily know enough about my team to be like, oh, I'm really short on power. I'm going to take Judge. Or, oh, I think Springer's going to score a bunch of runs. I don't have enough runs. I'm going to take Springer. Early in drafts, I don't want to do that. I just want to take the player I like best. If it's really a tie, if two, two guys, I'm like, I really can't tell the difference. Okay, then I'll then I'll use that as a tiebreaker. But in that bottom half of that list, yeah, man, take the guy you need, not the guy who's highest. Right. The only thing that could make a difference for me towards the top of drafts, and I think we actually see it at the very tip top of drafts because these rankings are for five by five. And so I'm going to prefer Fernando Tatis Jr. over Juan Soto for really just because Tatis could actually give me 30 stolen bases. And I don't think Soto has a shot at that. Um, But I also think it's worth pointing out. This is why in our position rankings that it's taken so long to talk about tiers because we've only done the top 10 for the other positions. And most of the top 10 at every position other than catcher go within those first 100 picks. And so when we were doing our rankings before, it's all about who's just the best player, but in outfields, when we're taking it as far as 20, it's such a deep position. And like, there's not a lot of consistency amongst the skill sets with outfielders. Whereas at other positions, like at first base, you're not going to have like some 30 base stealer where you've really got to consider the differences. It's kind of easy to compare them in the outfield. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. You have your 40 home run hitter and your 40 stolen base guys. Um, So I think it, it makes it that much more important to do it again. Once you get to that point where it's not just about high end talent and you have to start making decisions best for your team based on tier and, and based on skill set. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. Uh, the other guy who we were just chatting about, you're talking about uh, him leaving his current home, and that is Nick Castellanos. And I, I do have I, I I struggled with whether or not Castellanos belonged on this list for me. Uh, and, and the reason is because of what you said. So Castellanos, if you look at his numbers since he left Detroit, because really he's been a different player since he left Detroit, right? Which, which we all know part of that could be like, he broke out, he figured things out, whatever. He has a 134 WRC plus since leaving Detroit at home, which has been primarily great American ballpark, but also included some time at Wrigley. He has a 162 WRC plus on the road. He has a 105. So like, massive, massive difference. No, 105 WRC plus. That's not bad. His, his slash line is 251, 308, 476. He's hit, you know, in, in 523 road plate appearances. So not quite a full season. He's got 26 home runs. Like he's been totally fine on the road, but it's, it's not the same. It's not what you expect from what you, would you like see from him overall at all? Uh, and so that's, you know, that's really concerning for me. If you look at it just since he got to Cincinnati, which is, you know, even more relevant, I guess his overall line since he got to Cincinnati is a 128 WRC plus at home. It's a 153 on the road. It's a 104. There is a lot of risk. Like he seems very park dependent and I, I am, it's not, it hasn't been enough to scare me off of like, I kept him in auto new leagues where I have him. I will probably still sign him or draft him in leagues where I don't, but my price on him is coming down quite a bit because I, I, I'm, I'm a little nervous. I'm a little nervous. Um, I just, I, I don't think he's just a product of his ballpark, but 
man, the stats are a little scary. And this isn't like a Coors thing where like Coors players pay a big penalty on the road because breaking balls break differently. Like it's just a different game. That's not true. At least I don't think it's true for great American ballpark, right? It's just a short fence. That's all it is. It's just, it's just an easy park to hit. And so when he goes away, like when, when Trevor story leaves cores, the game is going to get easier for him in every other stadium. When Castellanos leaves Cincinnati, he doesn't get that benefit. He just loses the advantage at home. So that's, and we've seen that before. Like, like you said, I mean, like he was a disaster in Detroit makes the move to the Cubs. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, everybody forgot about this guy. He's still really good. He is a player who's definitely pretty ballpark dependent. And again, I think it's important to stress what you were stressing earlier. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're even out on Nick Castellanos. It just means that we need to temper our expectations. And and you said you kept him in your new leagues. I cut him. I had a $28 Nick Castellanos. I felt like that was pretty expensive and I don't. Honestly, I feel like I could get him back for much cheaper than that, and I'm going to be okay if I don't. So, I mean, Nick Castellanos is kind of like Marcus Simeon for me in that the last two years I've been super in on them, and this year I'm kind of pumping the brakes a little bit. And and part of that has to do with park, part of that has to do with age, part of that has to do with, you know, okay, they did well for what I thought they were going to do well. I don't know how much this is going to continue. Um, But he's definitely a guy who fits into some kind of tier and if if he's the last guy of the tier then take him but i'm not going to go out of my way to draft nick castellanos this season unless the reds shock everyone which they're not going to do and bring him back because at that point honestly i might value him pretty much equal to judge and definitely higher than illoy and i think that's three players who kind of compare similarly not to you know be too mean to aaron judge there because he's clearly better than illoy jimenez yeah, I think it makes sense. I, and I like when I said I kept him, I I had one Castellanos. He was $19. It was an easy choice, right? Because like, I, I, you know, 28, I think is is much tougher. Looking at my leagues in Auto New, uh, he was kept in five of one, two, three, five of six of my established leagues at $31, the $19 version I kept, 25, 24, and 30. So a couple of people keeping them you know, at or above 30 bucks in our listener league that is drafting right now. He went for 22. Um, my guess is that he goes for more like 25, 26, but I still don't think I would have kept him at 28. Like, I don't know that you'll, I don't know that you'll get him back cheaper, but I'm okay with someone else paying 30 for him. Um, unless we get, like I said, unless we get new information. And that's such a great example, too, about the tiers, because I'm obviously in the listener league and I have a $27 Eloy. And even though I have Eloy much higher than Castellanos on this list, I would so much rather have a $22 Castellanos than a $27 Eloy. Um, and, you know, if, if Nick has a bad season, just cut him and do something else with that 24 bucks. So, you know, that that's a great example of why cost matters here. So let's look at the top of our list a little bit. And this is sort of a maybe a moot point because who cares, but uh, we both put Tatis ahead of Soto. I struggled with that and I struggled with it for two reasons. One is this is an outfield list. And if I'm drafting someone to be an outfielder, I don't know, like, especially in a keeper league, like I don't know if I can rely on Tatis to be an outfielder long-term. Like he may just 
let, let's assume perfect health for him. He plays 160 games at shortstop this year or something like that. Seems totally plausible. I'm not sure about that. I think there are reasons they may may put him back in the outfield or at least even part-time. Um, that team, like right now, the Padres is sort of off topic, but the Padres outfield is not that good. Like I'm very high in Grisham. He is on my top 20 list. We will get to him at some point. And then like Will Myers has not been good. And their other outfielders right now are like Nomar Mazzara and Jerickson Profar. And like, <laughs> yeah. If the, there yeah. is there is absolutely a situation where Haseon Kim performs really well, and having him play on the infield with Tatis in the outfield makes more sense than like, at least part time. So we'll see. But anyways, is it is it reasonable to have Tatis over Soto on an outfield list? Given Tatis may never play outfield again, and has this shoulder thing sort of hanging over him. Yeah, the shoulder thing is is my focus. Um, I mean, I, I guess we could use the same argument for Cattell Marte, right? I don't know if he's going to have outfield next year, so that makes me feel better about not having him on my rankings because that was a clear oversight. Anyway, that aside, um, and I agree with what you said about the Padres, but I, I actually, ironically enough, think I've read rumors they're going to be in on Castellanos, so maybe that's a fit. Maybe they bring back Tommy Pham. Um, but the shoulder does concern me. That is not a park I want Nick Castellanos to go to. Nope. No, like but it, it is a, a lineup. Sure. Sure. And Petco's a lot better than it used to be. Like they've, they've moved mm-hmm. fences and they made some changes. It It is not the uh, absolute death to hitters that it, that it used to be, but it, that is, it is not a great fit for him. I don't think. I don't no, know. it's, there's not a lot of parks that, that would be. And uh, I have to bring my bias in time. Bloom said he wants a right-handed bat and, you know, we still haven't brought back Schwarber and I kind of would rather Schwarber or Castellanos more than I want say a Suzuki. So Schwarber's a lefty. And if they want to bring in a veteran right-handed bat, Castellanos could end up in Fenway, which may be definitely a more interesting fit for him. Um, power would play down a little bit, but I, th- I think he'd still easily hit 320 or something like that. Anyway, to bring it all the way back to somehow Tatis's shoulder, um, that is concerning. Now, I just have a hard time believing that this $400 million investment by the Padres, because I'm not a doctor, and, and I, I have a hard time reading these situations, especially when a guy is currently healthy, like trying to figure out what, why he's going to go wrong. It's just like I, I have a hard time with that. And I know it's a little bit more straightforward with this kind of injury where there's a history, and it's just as simple as like this is something that could happen again. And if it happens again, it could tear this, that, and the other thing, and it's going to be a problem. But a $400 million investment and and they decided to not do the surgery. I just like, there's got to be a lot of smart minds on this. And somehow, some way they've landed on this decision. So I'm just going to be okay with it, I guess, until it happens again. And remember, when it did happen, when his shoulder flew off of his body or whatever the heck happened, he was on the IL for the minimum stay. Like this guy's a superhuman. He's a predator. And he comes back and was arguably like better than he was before. Um, so like. Until, you know, because I guess to sum up my babbling, if I feel like this is going to be a problem, I'm not drafting him. And at this point in time, I can't not draft Tatis. Got it. I, I think that makes sense. And I, I I agree with you on like the the Padres know more about his shoulder than I do. And if they're willing to invest four hundred million in him, I should be willing to in- invest a draft pick. That seems that seems reasonable. It's about it's about equal. 
Yeah, that's how much I value my draft picks. They're worth about four hundred million to me. So, uh, I just it, this is less about Tatis and more about Soto. Like, I know he doesn't do everything Tatis does, but he is so good and so bankable. Like, I don't know if there's anybody in in the fantasy world who I'm more comfortable saying like, you take this guy in the top five, you're going to get top five value for him. There's just no way around it. Uh, he's just that good. And that that's the one thing. But Tatis has better upside. He just does. Like he he is he is capable of doing what Soto can do for the most part. You know, the plate discipline is not at the same level. No nope. one's is. Uh, he's capable of doing most of what Soto can do for you from a fantasy perspective and stealing you a bunch of bags. And so, fine. Uh, I, I'm good with that. I think he belongs up there. Um, I want to want to jump down a couple questions on our list now and talk about Cedric Mullins and Tyler O'Neill. So I have Mullins at nine and O'Neill at twelve. You have Mullins at twelve and O'Neill at nineteen. This was these two were very difficult for me to rank because if you just told me right now what they did last year was real. It was real. It's going to happen again. It's going to repeat. Then you get into like real interesting conversation about like, man, a 30-30 outfielder out of Cedric Mullins. Okay, I've got him at nine, but like that seems low. Uh, and O'Neill, same thing. Like if you just told me, yep, what he did last year is legit and he's going to do it every year from now on, I ha- we both have him way too low. How did you decide sort of where to balance that and where to put them on your list given like – given the the wide range of outcomes for both of these guys. Yeah, it's a good way to put it because they do both have, I I think O'Neill's is way more staggering, but they both have a pretty wide range of potential outcomes. For me, Mullen, I I mean, I trust the speed of both because O'Neill is such a freak athlete, but I trust Mullins to get on base more. And so I, I, I think there's a higher likelihood. I think he obviously has a higher floor, like I said, and I think there's a higher likelihood he reaches those stolen base levels that we at a minimum want, like if we're going to invest a third round pick in Cedric Mullins and and it goes wrong, he is not who he was last year. I think we're still banking on, you know, like anywhere from 20 to 30 steals. And that makes me feel a little bit better about that pick because they're so hard to find. O'Neal, though, that is like such a boomer bust player that given where he's going in drafts, I don't think I'm going to have him anywhere because I just feel like there are other players who are just more bankable than Tyler O'Neill. And like, yeah, I see the upside, but I don't, I'll gamble on upside with with later picks than than so early on. I think obviously O'Neill has more legit power. I think he will out Homer Cedric Mullins for the rest of his career. I think like Cedric Mullins is 30 ish homers feel like what we got from Bregman a few years ago at the 41 where it was like just every homer was pulled. It wasn't crazy exit velocities. He got a ton of volume. And it just it just worked out. And that's not to take away from either one of those players. It's just it's a career year. And so it's this balance of being like, all right, can it be a career year from a guy who came out of nowhere, but still end up being a really solid fantasy option? And I think people have trouble balancing that because it's like, well, was he a fluke or not? And it's like, it could have been a fluky season for him, but he could still be really good. And we kind of like missed him and he's still valuable and he's still worth a a third or fourth round pick. I think there's there's a real there's a real world, highly likely outcome where Mullins goes 20, 30 instead of 30, 30. Yeah. And like, does that make last year a fluke? 
yeah, he like he may he may never do much better than 2030 again. And that 30 home runs may be 50% more than he hits in any other season the rest of his career. And that will make it a fluke. It is an outlier that it never happens again. And also makes him a legitimate top outfielder. Exactly. Right? And, and so I think the, you're, you're absolutely right. Right. And, and that is where I agree with you. That is why I have Mullins higher than O'Neill. Um, it's also why I'm drafting Mullins much higher than O'Neill in redraft. So for me, one of the, one of the, like O'Neill, I've moved up here compared to where I have him in redraft because I think the upside is so high. Uh, and so the payoff, if he's great, is huge. Uh, whereas in redraft, like I'm comparing him to, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up the TGFBI mock drafts. So in the TG, one of the TGFBI mock drafts I'm in right now. Um, sort of late-ish fourth round, we had George Springer and Randy Rosarena go, and the top of the fifth, you then had Christian Yelich and Tyler O'Neill, and then a little bit later in that fifth round, you had Eloy Jimenez. Like, looking at that group, man, there's a lot of risk in that group. Uh, but uh, O'Neill, in that case, you're looking, it's like, if I pass on him and instead take Eloy or even wait a whole round and take Brian Reynolds, like, I'm getting much safer production. And the upside is there. He certainly could be more valuable than those guys, but it's one year of upside versus multiple years of upside. The other draft that's going on right now, O'Neill went at the at the start of the fourth round, just before Castellanos and just a few picks after Judge. This one, actually, I have no, I don't really have any issues with this at all because. I would take Judge before O'Neill, and I would take Castellanos after O'Neill. I think there's more of a question of whether some of the guys who went later in the fourth round would be better. But again, if you pass on O'Neill there because you decide, I'm going to take someone safer like Castellanos, perhaps, who went a little bit later. Uh, Randy Rosarena, Eloy Jimenez, George Springer, and Byron Buxton all went in that round as well. Like If you've taken one of those guys, Buxton is sort of the same risk-reward proposition. Springer's a lot safer. I think Eloy's safer. Like I totally get that for one year. Over the course of multiple years, I think that's where you get into a tougher like, man, if O'Neill really is a 35-15 guy, that's hard to give up on for the next few years. So he is is a little higher on my list here than he is in redraft. I I don't know. I I would like to have both Mullins and O'Neill on my teams. I don't know if I'm going to. Um, I don't. I think I did. I take Mullins in one of these mocks. I did. So I, I took, I, in, in one of these two mocks, I had uh, the second pick. <laughs> so here I am talking about like the risk of Mullins and worrying about Fernando Tatis's shoulder. I had the second pick Trey Turner went first. So I took Tatis second and then it's a 15 teamer. So my second pick was 29th and I took Mullins there. Uh, the, the other next outfielders who went off the board were Starling Marte and Teoscar Hernandez. And again, for me, when I ended up taking Mullins there, it was a, um, like the very next player off the board was Whit Merrifield. Ugh. Uh, and so I was like, eh, like if I'm looking at the other guys there, yes, I could have taken power from a guy like Aaron judge. Um, I could have gone with a different position like Matt Olson. I actually, actually, I obviously Matt Olson went three picks later, but it was to me. So I'm fine with that too. Um, I could have taken, I don't know. I don't know who else. I, got. I could have taken a pitcher. I could have taken like 
Sandy Alcantara, Julio Urias, and Aaron Nola were the next pitchers off the board. I could have taken Marcus Simeon. Like, there's some names I could have taken there. But, like, if Mullins is if Mullins is bad, he's leading off, scoring a lot of runs, and stealing a lot of bases. Like, that's that's the downside. And so it felt like exactly the, the, just the floor just isn't that bad. And I, I think that's what a lot of people are missing, is that, like, it doesn't have to be, like we said, yes, it was a fluke, but also he's really good. Chad, call me crazy. Um, I, I don't understand. Well, let me correct myself. I do understand, but after the guys in the first round who steal bases. So once you get past, you know, Jose Ramirez, Dante Bichette, um, oh my God, um, Bo Bichette. <laughs> uh, and that's not me being ever a first round pick. Yeah, yeah. I never played fantasy baseball when Dante Bichette was playing. So I don't know. I don't think I did. Maybe he was like super old. I don't know that. I don't know where that came from. We'll blame MLB the show. <laughs> um, once those guys are gone. If you're if you want to take a hitter, to me, especially in five outfield leagues, the pick should be Aaron Judge. I I feel like he is because I, I noticed you said he went, and I'm fine taking Cedric Mullins over him, I guess, because stolen bases are just so important, especially in a 15 team league. Like once you you know, once those first three rounds are gone, it's like, okay, I guess there's no more stolen bases. But I don't I feel like Aaron Judge is being slept on, even though he's like a third or fourth round pick, because he at at a minimum, is going to be an absolute monster in four of the five categories. And I guess that's that's like at a, also at a ceiling. Like he's not going to steal any bases. But help me understand because I, I don't understand why Aaron Judge is like going so many picks behind uh, Freddie Freeman, for example. Well, I mean, Freeman, I don't know. So to me, like I, Freeman is way more bankable production than most people. I actually think Freeman, like, is it health? Is that why for judge? I think so. I think it must for, for be. judge versus Freeman. Cause Freeman's obviously as reliable as it gets. Yeah. I also think, I mean, I don't know. I just think Freeman's a better hitter than judge. Maybe that's wrong, but I, I don't know. I'm trying Freeman... so hard to jinx Aaron judge right now. I'm just trying so hard. <laughs> I'm looking at these again, look at these two mock drafts for TGFBI that I'm doing with it, with some pitcher list writers uh, in one of them. So I mentioned, I took Mullins, late second round and then took Matt Olson at the, you know, at the second pick of the third round and, and judge went sort of middle of the third round there. Um, there are other guys who went before judge there. I like, you know, Justin Dunbar is picking fourth in that draft, took Juan Soto fourth Shane Bieber in the second round and then took Starling Marte and he could have taken judge. And like, I sort of get, if you took Soto in the first Marte makes sense to pair with him. So I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. Um, Teoscar Hernandez went fifth in that round. I think you like to me, judge versus Teoscar is like, I, I would take judge. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, so like I, I would have taken him earlier there, I think in the other mock draft, this is one. So Alexander chase is picking fourth there. He took Jose Ramirez who, uh, I, I would usually, I would take him third. Like Juan Soto went first in that I have in, in a five by five redraft, I'm taking, Turner, Tatis, and Ramirez over Soto. Um, but he took Jose Ramirez fourth and then took Aaron Judge in the second round. Yeah. Like that is now we're talking. Smart, you said right? that was Alex Chase? Yeah. Yeah. Like a smart man. I just I don't I, I, I don't get it. I mean, I understand that guys who have such high exit velocities, like their expected batting average can be misleading. 
But as a spoiler, this is a huge spoiler because everybody's anticipating Pete Ball's 2022 bold predictions. Um, I boldly and my bold predictions are like super bold. Like there's supposed to be a one in 10 chance. Mine is like one in a thousand. But I predict Aaron Judge to win the Triple Crown because why? I don't even think that's that crazy. I, I think he legitimately with a little bit more luck in Babbitt because he smokes the ball so hard could win the Triple Crown. I mean, we're talking about a guy who had who could have easily like eat, this is not a bold prediction. 200 runs plus RBI and 50 home runs. And so really all he needs at that point is, is to get a little lucky in the batting average department, which like he profiles as a guy who could, he does not have like obnoxiously terrible sprint speed just because he's the size of the empire state building. Like he gets on base. He could even chip in like six steals for fantasy. That's what he's done two of the last three full seasons. And his expected batting average has gone up every year. His strikeouts go down every year. This is a guy who's still improving. And I don't know if it's just fatigue on him or, or it's because he's a Yankee and it's kind of working in the opposite way as it normally does. But I could not be more in on Aaron Judge, and I think I have him higher than probably everybody else on my boards. So the weird thing with Judge, I think this is weird. So he was sixth in home runs last year. He was 25th in batting average. He was 25th in RBIs as well, which seems like a guy who hits for a high average and that much power should just, like, I don't know. It feels like Part there should of, be some way to calculate an expected RBI total. Yeah, <laughs> that's feels wow. Like is, I love that idea, first of all. But also, the, the, it he batted second on a, on a lineup that was disappointing all yeah. season long, especially DJ LeMay, who, who's, who was the engine. I don't think we can still call him the engine, even though I'm still all in on him. <laughs> so let's take a quick break, get our ad in, and then we will be back with some more thoughts on outfield. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show all right, welcome back. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about some some risky decisions here. Uh, and in general, like, let me start by listing off. Here are the four guys you have on your list that I don't have on mine. Jared Kelnick, Julio Rodriguez, Cody Bellinger, Christian Yellick. And those seem like four really, I mean... I shouldn't even say they seem like four really different names. They seem like two groups of, of very, two very different groups of two names. But the big similarity here to me is it feels like you're taking on a lot of risk with those four. Whereas the four guys I have that you don't Cattell Marte, Randy Rosarena, George Springer, and Trent Grisham. Um, not that there's no risk in those guys, but the it's a very different risk profile. Uh, talk a little bit about like what, I mean, Man, especially those two young Mariners. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> How, yeah. What are they doing there? Sure. So, I mean, 
Kelnick is probably the best example of why I shouldn't have Julio Rodriguez, right? I mean, same system, tons of hype. Like, I don't know how you could discernibly definitely say one is better than the other. An analyst who I really like, really trust compared Julio Rodriguez to Alex Rodriguez, which sounds absurd. He acknowledged that in the in the podcast that they that they did. It was Scott White at CBS. So it, it wasn't like a it was almost like named Rodriguez. Boom. Right. There you go. Um, Easy comp. <laughs> and that's obviously not what I'm going for here, because then I would have to have them in my top three. Right. Um, but it, we've had conversations in the past, Chad, especially when it comes to keeper leagues and figuring things out and how hard it is to make these rankings where I was clearly here going with ceiling, right? We got a pair of MVP candidates who have fallen off the face of the earth and a, and a pair of, um, you know, t- literal top hitting prospects in baseball. Now, when I compared Rodriguez to, to Kelnick, it wasn't just like a, Hey, they're top prospects in the same system. They're also, well, Rodriguez is now like Kelnick was battling. Like, when is he going to get called up? They actually have kind of similar plate discipline profiles, at least in the minor leagues, in reference to walk percentage and strikeout percentage. And I think that's that's like the first place I look for prospects. And it's why in the notes you said like you know Riley Green question mark, and that's why I didn't have Riley Green because I'm pretty sure he has like a 27, 28 percent K rate in the minor leagues, and that kind of stuck out to me as as being a little bit concerning. If I'm off on that number, I apologize to Tigers fans. Um, but bottom line, if we're talking over the next one to three years, and this is bringing us all the way back to our conversation about Torkelson, right? I'm still absolutely all in on Jared Kelnick, and I'm definitely all in on Julio Rodriguez. I'm all in on the Mariners, man. It's not a great ballpark to hit in, but it just feels like something special is brewing there, and uh, I don't want to miss it. Yeah, I should. I should, at least, for the, Seattle. at least to see Chad and get a nice cup of coffee. I don't know if the owners are going to figure things out. But yeah. uh, but if they do, you get out here, we'll go we'll go to the game. We can record a, an episode in person. It'd be crazy. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, that would be tight. But, uh, but yeah, look, yeah looking all at, in. Looking at the, the those minor league numbers you're talking about, um, so Kelnick only reached double, or not Kelnick, Rodriguez only reached double A last year. Uh, Kelnick, of course, reached the majors. Uh, but Rodriguez reached double A. He had a 14% walk rate and an 18% strikeout rate in 206 double A plate appearances. Um, he also had 134 plate appearances in high A and a, a not quite as good, a 10.4% walk rate, 21.6% strikeout rate, but still in that, this, you know, high walk rate, acceptable strikeout rate range in double A. Uh, in 373 plate appearances, Green had an 11% walk rate, similar walk rate, but a 27.3% strikeout rate. Oh, I was so close. I yeah. swear to God, I did not look that up. <laughs> and then he went to AAA, and in 185 AAA plate appearances, was very similar. 11.9% walk rate, 27.6% strikeout rate. So I, I do think you are right that um, the skills that I, I most want to bet on with a minor league bat are there with Rodriguez in a way that they are not with green. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm like worried about green. I think those numbers are fine. And I think he is still very exciting. I agree with having him below Rodriguez long-term. Although I think green may be up much, much sooner. Um, One of the reasons I did not have Rodriguez on my list besides the general, like he's, never been above double a and it seems crazy to consider him a top 20 outfielder (laughs) to me uh is that i think there's a good chance we don't see him till late in the year this year especially if nothing changes with with service time stuff um i left off kelnick though i I think i mean i don't know how many times we can have this conversation but just 
prospects, <laughs> they're hard to predict. And they, and they, it's not even that they bust at a high level. It's like, you know, Jared Kelnick could be a super solid, very good player who is not nearly as good as Randy Rosarena, who I have at 19th on my list. And that shouldn't be considered busting. It no. just shouldn't. No, um, absolutely not. And I also think with, with Kelnick in particular, like he, he has had double digit steals in the past. He had 12 across two levels last year. He had 20 across three levels in 2019. He has projected for something like 10 to 15 steals. I don't know that I buy that he's going to run that much. And so because of that, um, th- there's just more of a, there's more floor risk to me than there is with, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of like who else I had, I guess the other guy, just the other guy I just compared him to was Randy Rosarena. So if you told me that Kelnick, like, you know, Rosarena last year went 2020 with a 274 average. Um, he's projected for like, roughly 2020 with like a 260 average. If you told me that Kelnick hit like 25 home runs with a 260 average and five stolen bases, that's not Kelnick busting. Like that's, that, that is depending on his on base percentage and everything that goes with it. Right. That is potentially an outcome that the, the Mariners are very, very happy with. And it's done. It's not going to touch a Rosarena's fantasy value. Uh, and so I, I'm, yeah, that that's where for me it's just I have a hard time with this because there are so many good outfielders, and I feel like getting into this group is like a seventy fifth percentile outcome for those two, not a fiftieth percentile outcome. Yeah, that's a definitely a fair way of looking at it. Um, obviously, in redraft, I'd have someone like a Rosarena above both of them. Um, I share the same similar concerns about Rodriguez, right? I do think Green will be up before him, um, and it, it may be a little bit of time before we see Rodriguez, given where I've seen him go in a few drafts um, in the early going here. I think people are expecting him a little bit sooner, and I don't know if that's going to be the case. I just think the upside is, is insurmountable. To bring it to Randy Rosarena really quick, kind of independent of Kelnick and Julio Rodriguez, I didn't have him. I, I'm just not a big fan. I, I I see bottoming out potential with Rosarena. The park stinks, and he there's so much swing and miss in his game. And like, I don't, on any other team, it would sound crazy. But on the Rays, is he at risk of losing playing time if he's striking out that much? It's just not their play style. And like, yes, he had the unbelievable playoffs and followed that up with the 2020 season. So I, I understand that I maybe sound a little bit crazy or, or or trying to just go for a bold take here. But like, I I don't get it. Like, if if 141 games, we only got 20 stolen bases, then I'm not so sure that he's like this like stolen base stud, right? And the power's not that great, and there's so much swing and miss. I'd rather wait and get whoever's at the end of this tier for me. Yeah, he does. I mean, his 28.1% strikeout rate among qualified hitters last year was 14th in baseball. So he does strike out quite a bit. Um, I, I still think, like, that 2020 from a fantasy perspective is, like, I feel pretty good about him being around there pretty consistently. Uh, he He is... Like he put up a 363 BAPIP last year, which allowed him to put up a 274 average. I wouldn't count on that, but I do think he has good high BAPIP skills. Um, although looking now, his expected batting average was 220 last year. 
that's a little concerning. Um, so yeah, man, I'm looking at Statcast data. His ex- his woba last year was 350. His expected woba was 302. Oh man, now now maybe you're talking me out of having him on my list. Maybe I need to rethink this. I think I'm gonna have to do a deep dive into Randy Rosarena and figure out what what I think because I I've been generally lower on him than than most of the broader fantasy world because I think people are still like those playoffs I think that man insane <laughs> postseason in 2020 yeah. is still coloring people's perception and then he came back in the postseason this year and it was only four games and 19 plate appearances but he basically did it again he only had one home run in those four games but he had a 455 woba like yeah he was scary the guy just dominates the postseason for whatever reason um chris but, clegg has been doing some good work on expected statistics and how you know like we've known all along but it's it's actually kind of interesting how like they're not sticky and it really is just like what should have happened but not necessarily what's going to happen but like it doesn't make me feel, when i hear that it doesn't make me feel better when the numbers are bad right and and i think yes they are not sticky they are not predictive um but because they are descriptive they do tell you like look like for a guy who has like a you know a 320 woba and a 350 x woba it's like he hit sort of like a 350 Woba guy last year and it, it didn't pan out, right? He was, whether he was unlucky or whether there's something about the way it's calculated that missed fine that. The, and I feel the same way here when I read about a Rosarina, it's like, no, this, this is like the best way to predict what he's going to do in 2022 is not to say, well, he had a 302 X Woba. So he's going to have a 302 Woba next year. Like that's not the way to, to do this, but it does suggest that last year he was, he was getting a little lucky. Yeah. Balls were falling in that shouldn't have. Balls were maybe getting out that normally wouldn't. Um, so we'll have to see. I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at him a little bit closer because I'm I've got some concerns having seen those numbers <laughs> that I maybe didn't when I made this list. So uh, very interesting. I'm glad you brought him up. Um, let's talk about some guys who were left off the list. Uh, Three names sort of jumped out to me as as difficult to leave off, and maybe I could have put them on. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton, Brian Reynolds, and Kyle Schwarber all were pretty close for me. I had those guys, like Stanton in particular, in a very similar group to Bellinger and Yelich. And you put those those guys on. I'm curious, like, what separated Bellinger and Yelich for you? And, like, what do you think about a guy like Stanton? Like, why why not him? Sure. Uh, so... Bellinger and Yelich. I don't, is it crazy to say that they could hit for as much power as Giancarlo Stanton? Like, I don't find it likely. And maybe after last season when Stanton like really burst back onto the scene and those two completely disappeared, it is crazy to say, but I I don't, I wouldn't bet my house that Stanton's going to hit for more power in 2022 than those two. Like it's possible it's within their range of outcomes. And then you factor in the speed. We're talking five by five. Bellinger still does have elite speed, whether the Dodgers let him run or he gets enough volume to, to, provide a substantial stolen base total will remain to be seen. But given Yelich and Bellinger's ability to get on base combined with their speed, I think I think we could still get a pretty decent stolen base total that helps maybe not elevate them past Giancarlo Stanton, but keep them in the same tier, even though they're both coming, all three of them are coming off such drastically different seasons. I guess it was again coming down to like upside for me, right? Like Giancarlo Stanton has amazing upside. I can't in one breath say that like, I think Aaron Judge could win the triple crown and should be going around the same point in the draft as Freddie Freeman. And then in the next breath, say that like, ah, Stanton, eh, whatever. But 
Bellinger and Yelich, I guess that's my way of saying like, I'm not ready to jump ship just yet. I, I, I'm still holding on barely, especially to Yelich, but I'm there. I'm still on board. Yeah, I, I think for, for Yelich, it depends a little bit on format. Like I mentioned in our in our four by four on a new league, I picked him up for $19 because I think his on base percentage, like he's going to get on base and he's going to hit near the top of that Brewers lineup. And that combination, like if he gets on base and his power keeps slipping, he may end up leading off, which in a four by four league may actually help him, right? He ends yep. up like, you know, it's his, his downside might be like Brandon Nimmo or something, which is not a bad downside. Whereas the upside is huge in when you're outside of on base leagues, like in traditional five by five, you know, he should steal you some bases you would think. Um, but he's only got, you know, four in 2020 and nine last year, like the days of him being a 20 to 30 stolen base guy are, are gone. His projections are around 15. And I think that's, I think that's optimistic. Look, you know, keep in mind the, the, the last two seasons stolen base totals are also his two worst seasons and most injury plague seasons. So if he yeah. is able to stay in the field, I would expect that to be a lot higher. That's fair. I mean, he, he played, he, so between those two seasons, he has 599 plate appearances, which is roughly a full season. He has only gotten over 599 plate appearances once in his career, and that was in 2017. That's 13 combined stolen bases. My my take on this is that is like that's sort of a ceiling. Like I think if he, I think it is unlikely he gets 600 plate appearances because he's he hasn't done it. Like that's just not what he what he's been capable of doing. And he's got back issues, which tend to not just disappear. So I think you can count on a quote-unquote full season from him, but not 600 plate appearances. And I also think part of what's going to keep him on the field is not putting himself in a position to get hurt more, which may mean running less. So I, I just, I don't know. Like I said, he's project, his projections are anywhere from 13 to 19 stolen bases, and I, I'll take the under on the 13th. Interesting. I, I'd probably go on the over just because looking at like, like, yeah, adding up the two seasons, it looks like a full season and, and this is what he ended up st stealing. But it's also a hard way of looking at it because he was dealing with injuries the whole time. He was in terrible slumps. His strikeout rate in 2020 was just stupid. Like, I, I don't know if that's going to hold up. And while you were talking, though, I, it got me thinking. I am a little worried that on one hand, I'm excited that the DH is coming to the National League because even though they have so many options, Christian Yelich is their most important player. And so if he needs time at DH, he's going to get it. And I think that's great for him. And I think it actually keep him in the lineup. But also, uh, it, it, this worries me that he's not with the team, training with the team, with the team doctors. He's a guy who needs it. And he's not because of this lockout. So I don't think it's that's not enough of a reason to push him down draft boards. Like if you were in on Yelich, I don't think that's a reason to be out because we don't know how much of an impact that's going to have. But it could, and it doesn't. It doesn't make me feel any better about a player who's dealt with serious injuries and is coming off a terrible season. Yeah, that that's for sure true, and I think that that's concerning about a lot of guys who it's like, I wish I knew that they were they were in the right facilities and all that kind of stuff. And luckily, Yelich, like, he can just like build himself a real nice facility if he needs to. He can he can afford the doctors. So hopefully, that's he's, true. That's he's true. doing all the right things. But <laughs> I agree that is a little bit a little bit concerning. So let's let's take a quick look at some guys who are not on our list. Um, I mentioned already Stanton, Reynolds, and Schwarber. Those are three guys I really like. Three guys who are a little bit further down on lists that I'm interested in. Uh, Akil Badu, Michael Conforto, and Adelis Garcia. 
in uh, like very, very different reasons. I like these guys. Um, Badu was a rule five pick last year. He's only 23. He was, he was super up and down last season. Um, for anyone who had him on a team, like if you picked him up early in the season, like I did, you went through parts of the season where you were like, wow, this guy can't hit the ball at all. He is striking out a ton. I am out. And then like two weeks later, you're like, oh, he seems to have like fixed his K rate and things are moving the right direction again. And he was very, very up and down, which I don't think is, it's not uncommon or problematic for a young player. Like that's just part of what happens with a young guy, especially a rule five pick, right? Because I think, you know, one thing that is, that is generally true about rule five picks is there's at least one or, well, this is definitely true. There's at least one organization that doesn't think he's close to ready for the majors. And there's another organization that is now saying in order to get this guy, we are willing to just put him on our roster no matter what. And so I, I have some, I have some concerns about him or I had some concerns about him last year because of that he was so up and down, but I feel like he consistently made adjustments and they were adjustments that really impressed me. He had, he had strikeout issues. He seemed to find ways to solve them. And then in 413, 461 plate appearances last year, he had 13 home runs, 18 stolen bases. Um, I think this year he gets more than that 461 plate appearances. I think he's sort of established himself in that lineup. I think a, I am not, I, I'm not betting on a 2020 season, but I think it is certainly within like, I think 20 stolen bases is a pretty decent bet. Um, and I think 20 home runs is certainly within the realm of possibility for him. He's going to be in a much improved lineup in Detroit. And when I look at all that, it's like, I don't know. We, we, no, he does not have the ceiling that Cedric Mullins does. So don't take this the wrong way. But we were talking about Cedric Mullins and pointing out that, like, the downside on Mullins is that he does something like go 2030. And 2030 is more like upside for Badu, but they both could end up around there. And Badu yeah. is much cheaper. And so he's a guy who I'm, I'm really, I'm really interested in because of that. Um, Conforto is like, can he stay healthy? Can he bounce back? And I think people are, I don't know if they're just underrating what he did before or just so concerned about the health that like, I don't know, Conforto, Conforto just went actually recently in, in one of these TGFBI mocks in the 13th round. And I think like there's a ton of value to be had there. And Adelise Garcia, um, I don't know that I believe in Garcia. Like, I think that's the, the simplest way to say it is like, I'm not sure I actually think Adelise Garcia is a particularly good hitter. And I'm not sure that he is going to hold on to a regular job, let alone consistently put up fantasy numbers. However, he is more than capable of putting up a huge fantasy season. If he can control the strikeouts and stay in the lineup, he could put up big, big numbers. And so I like him late as just sort of a a breakout candidate. Anyone you're looking at further down or any reactions to those guys? Yeah, so I'll start with some reactions to those guys. You know, you brought up Mullins for Badu, and I, I really like that. It's a kind of like bold, like, why not comparison, right? Like if Mullins was going past pick 400 last year, I think it's okay. We can compare him to a Gil Badu, right? Like that, I think that's a responsible thing to do. And like you said, I'd rather Mullins, but I definitely see the comparison there. In my head, I was thinking more of the guy we just talked about, Randy Rosarena, right? Strikeout problems, 
but otherwise probably a 2020 player. I'm not saying I would take Badu over Arosa Reina. I don't, I feel like I don't need to clarify that, but I would rather have Badu where he's going than Arosa Reina where he's going. Um, Adelise Garcia, like we, we had this conversation before where like he was awesome in the first half, then pitchers adjusted in the second half. So let's see if he can adjust back and see what he does with a much better lineup around him. Because it's like it, we're we're really killing Marcus Semien and Corey Seager, or at least their value, because of where they went. But I don't think on the flip side we're doing enough of like, well, now Willie Calhoun's really interesting, and now Adelise Garcia is a little bit more interesting because their lineup actually got a lot better, and it has to work both ways. Otherwise, it's inconsistent. And so I kind of like that, that Garcia could hit behind Semien and Seager. Um, the third player there, the second one you mentioned, I'm sorry, I, I completely forgot. Conforto. Conforto, yes. I'm a big Conforto fan. And if you look at the expected statistics, right, he was supposed to be a lot better last year. He got unlucky. Let's see what happens. I think it's a natural thing and a name that you listed in the notes but didn't bring up is Kyle Schwarber. I think they're good to compare the two right now. Schwarber's, in my opinion, a far superior player. But I think we're getting a discount in drafts because they haven't signed yet. And it's like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to feel pretty good about Kyle Schwarber no matter where he ends up. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be drafting him no matter what. And Conforto, I get it, but I, I'm not, I don't think the mystery of where he's going to sign means that we have to like, you know, depreciate his value so much. I like both those players. I'm in a name that wasn't in the notes and we haven't brought up is Jesse Winker. And I feel like we have to bring him up because even though he is a joke against lefties, I mean, just awful with that said, and with that being the case, he was like, he was like a top 10 outfielder until he got hurt last year. He was absolutely unbelievable. And he's still in Cincinnati. They're losing Castellanos, but it's still a pretty solid lineup. I like Jesse Winker. And and even though he is, again, a joke against lefties, maybe he improves on that. Maybe he doesn't. But even if he doesn't, look at how well he's performed. And if he does, wow, then he could put forward some crazy seasons, especially with that plate discipline. So Winker's a guy who definitely, I guess, a sleeper top 20 outfielder. I don't know. I think a lot of people would have him in their top 20, but uh, Jesse Winker, I like. Yeah, definitely agree with that on Winker. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, these are all guys that, I, that I'll be I'll be in on for sure, Winker included. And just in case anybody questions whether we, we live the advice we're giving in the Keeper cut listener auto new league slow auction that is going on right now. I'm watching the clock tick down to 18 minutes on Adelise Garcia, and he is going to be Pete's unless somebody jumps in there with a four dollar bid sometime soon. I really Which, hope he is mine. Yeah, well, I, I've been I've been slowly watching Jeff McNeil right above him, who's <laughs> down to nine minutes and will be mine for three dollars, and I'm I'm very excited about that. I was and that's also you being consistent because you are very in on Jeff McNeil. I have been I, future I, 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 guardian. I hope so. <laughs> and I was saying at the beginning of this episode that in that team, I've got Brandon Lau, Willie Adamas, and Brendan Rodgers, and I need some depth at, at middle infield. Like, McNeil is, to me, a, a great guy to pair with Rodgers in that middle infield spot. I can I can play Rodgers when he's at home. I, I feel like McNeil is safer despite the down year last year. So, like, it's a – I feel good about that. Um, getting back to outfield, though, we've got a couple other – just three more names to throw out that are that are going later in drafts, but I think particularly for keeper leagues are really interesting. Um, two of these guys we have talked about recently uh, on the show, Andrew Vaughn and Alex Kirilov. Um, we even directly compared them a couple episodes ago. Uh, but I think like they're they're both guys who I, I really like in keeper leagues. Um, Kirilov, I like in redraft as well. Vaughn, I'm a little more concerned about playing time, but I actually like him. I, I don't know. 
I like them both quite a bit. And so in keeper leagues, they are very much on my radar. The other guy who I don't think we've talked about recently, and honestly, part of the reason I've talked about him is I'm not really sure what to make of him, is Joe Adele. And, and Adele, like, this is a guy who was an elite, elite prospect for a while. Seemed to be, seemed to have completely busted. It's certainly what we would call post-hype at this point. Um, but I think we're going to finally actually see a full season of him. I mean, I, I don't know what else the angels are going to do. So I, I have to like, that's gotta be coming, right? <laughs> uh, yes. I've actually funny enough. It, it always seems to work out this way that the player we just talked about comes up, but I, I thought I read a rumor that Conforto could be a destination for, uh, or I'm sorry, the angels could be a destination for Conforto, um, which would obviously impact Adele's playing time. But like, I don't know. Adele was a top five prospect for a while, and he showed some flashes last year, especially the biggest thing, the improvement on the strikeout rate, even in the minor leagues. Like that's huge for this player because all of the other tools are there that it makes you feel like they have to play him. Like even if they brought in an outfielder, he's going to have to find his way into that lineup for every day at bats, in which case, of course, I'm interested. Um, Anyone that's showing improvement on their strikeout rate and was a top prospect and has all those tools, I'm, I'm definitely interested in. So I guess it comes down to like, who would you take him over? I don't think I'm ready to take him over Andrew Vaughn and Alex Kirilov since we're looking at those three kind of together. I, I really value position flexibility. And so if you wanted more of a deep dive on Vaughn and, and Kirilov, I'm pretty sure we did that in our first base uh, preview that you were referencing earlier. Um, so that's where you can find that. And, and clearly you'll see that Chad and I like both of those players. But with that said, once those guys are off the board, could Adele be my next outfielder I'm looking at, especially if I need upside and stolen bases? Yeah, I think he's a, a pretty decent gamble. Yeah, and he, you know, it's interesting because last year he wasn't like his major league line is not very good, but that 22.9% strikeout rate is just glaringly good compared to what he had been doing previously. And so, um, you know, you have a bit of a sense that, like, at least I have a bit of a sense that uh, the rest of the performance could follow. Yeah. And so he's definitely a guy, again, more so in keeper leagues than redraft because in redraft, you're taking on a lot of risk and, you know, if he if he's a stud, he's a stud. That's that's great. But you get, you know, six months of him being a stud and the downside is you get nothing in in a keeper league. You get, you know, multiple years of him performing for you if he really breaks out. So really interesting going a little bit younger and looking at prospects. There are a lot of outfield prospects. We've already talked about Julio Rodriguez. We've already talked about um, Riley Green a little bit. There are like there are guys like Luis Matos and Robert Hassel, and like there are just so many outfield names out there. The two guys, though, that I think are worth discussing quickly because I think they could both be up and be a factor this year are Alec Thomas and Josh Lowe. Um, most of those other prospects, like if I look at those other outfield prospects, a lot of them are like they're super interesting for Dynasty. Um, because they are really, really, really strong prospects. Um, like I really like Corbin Carroll, but he's probably a 2023 guy. Hassel and Matt Matos, who I mentioned, are probably 2024. You got Zach Veen at some point. Um, actually, the other guy. So when I mentioned Lowe and Thomas, they're both 2022 guys. The other 2022 we should talk about is probably Brennan Davis. Any thoughts on those three? Are you are you targeting any of those three? Um, I mean, in keeper leagues, sure, I'll I'll take a late stab. Um, I don't think it's 
you know, I actually liked a lot of those names that you're talking about for, for 2023, where in, in deeper formats, maybe I'd rather just pay even a cheaper price and stash. Um, I think Alec Thomas is going to be, is going to be soon. You know, that, that could be a, the Diamondbacks have done some odd things over the years, <laughs> like just, just head scratchers. And some of them have worked out. Some of them have not. Um, but it wouldn't like completely floor me if the worst team in the, in the national league West ended up randomly starting the season with Alec Thomas in the lineup. And that excites me a lot of speed there. Um, so for, for five by five, it would excite me. Um, but otherwise, you know, I think being the guy who's more in on prospects, I guess on this podcast, I, I probably like these guys a little bit more for, for keeper formats anyway, but I'm not going out of my way to draft them. Yeah, I think it, it's hard to draft them in, in keeper formats. I think in, in something like Auto New, where you go a little bit deeper, yeah, um, it makes more sense. I, you know, Alec Thomas was on, is on my roster in League Thirteen that that we play in together, the Fangraph Staff League that we're in, um, and that's the one I co-manage with Niv, and we were, I mean, we were planning on cutting most of our prospects because we were just like we're, we're planning on participating in auto new prestige league and prospects are are sort of a, a, they're not great there and we had made a decision that we we're going to keep nick prado and george valera because they were they were both two dollars and we thought okay we can we can manage that mm-hmm. and at the last minute um we came up with a trade that involved prado which was fine and then we ended up deciding that Alec Thomas and George Kirby, now Kirby has nothing to do with this conversation, but Alec Thomas and George Kirby, who are both $5, were close enough to being major league ready that it was worth gambling on them because the upside was big enough. And so we held on to both of them. They may end up being trade bait for us. Um, we'll have to see. But yeah, I mean, I think I think Thomas is a super exciting player. I, I think that he is, I do think he's close. I think we, we will probably see him pretty soon. Comparing him to to Davis and Lowe, um, I, I like both of the, I, I like all three of these guys. And so it's hard to compare them. I think Lowe might be the least exciting to me, but maybe the safest of the three. Huh. Um, I, I think the Rays will use him. I just think they'll use him in a part-time role because that's what they do with everybody. Uh, and I don't know that he has the upside of the other two Davis. Um, I think Thomas has the, the biggest upside. I think, Davis might be safer than Thomas. I just don't know what his, I don't know what his timeline is going to look like. The Cubs are like, they're in such a weird spot where like, I don't know if they're like, there's rumors they're going to resign Rizzo and stuff. It's like, are they trying to build a team to compete or are they rebuilding or like what is going on? And like, if you're rebuilding, why would you sign Rizzo instead of just giving more plate appearances to guys like Schwindel and wisdom and whoever else is like, see Butts and seats. There. yeah. Um, and you look at the outfield for the Cubs right now, and like, is there really any reason that Brennan Davis couldn't be starting for them like right now? Like, I mean, so Ian Happ is is good. Like Ian Happ is a a perfectly acceptable good baseball player. He belongs please in their lineup. Do not do anything with Ian Happ. Please just keep him in there. Yeah, <laughs> or I'm all my all my fantasy teams are going to crumble. <laughs> But like, who like what other outfielders they've got? They've got Harold Ramirez. They've got Rafael Ortega, Clint Frazier. Um, I'm trying to think of who else they've got. Well, around. Keep in mind too, they're going to have the DH. I think that's where Frazier's going to go because he can't play a fly ball. Yeah, Jason Hayward is still around. Um, <laughs> There's Michael a name. Hermosillo. <laughs> like they just they I don't know they got a bunch of dudes and 
not one of them, except for Ian Happ, is like Ortega not one was of those pretty guys good down is, the stretch. What? Ortega's pretty good down the stretch. They might want to give him a spot. So Ortega is worth seeing what he can do. Harold Ramirez is worth seeing what he can do. Frazier, like if he's finally healthy, like there's a bunch of guys here that it's worth checking out. There is nobody on this list that if Brendan Davis is ready, you're like, oh, Brendan Davis is ready, but we've got Rafael Ortega, <laughs> Frazier, and Harold Ramirez. Yeah, so no, you're he, right. I just don't know if they're going to actually push him or, or not. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what to expect. So this so. is kind of my ignorance, I guess, but how much, how much is the new CBA, you know, knock on wood, if we get a new CBA, uh, how much does that affect how we look at Brandon Davis, right? Because couldn't it be that there's, you know, service time manipulation is not a thing anymore, and that it really doesn't ins- sound like it's going that way, though. Okay, see, this is where my my ignorance on the on the topic comes in. So I'm just going to let you talk about that. Yeah. Well, I think I, to, to be fair, I think we're all ignorant about it, right? All we have are, are like random reports and noise that's out there, and we're not even all, reports; they're just tweets. <laughs> like, yeah, we're all just guessing. So I'm not going to sit here and say like, oh, they're not changing it, but it doesn't sound like there's going to be major changes to service time manipulation. Um, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. Hopefully there is. And because I like, that's one it's like, to me, this isn't even like an owners versus the players thing. Like I have lots of opinions and lots of things because it comes to like, what's best for the players, what's best for the owners. But like, I think it's just like service time manipulation is just a bad thing for baseball. Yeah. It's Big bad time. for the players. It's, it's, and I actually like, I actually think it's bad for the owners. Right. And I get why they do it because, I mean, it. Uh, this is we're getting into a different topic here, but I think it's worth quickly covering. But like, I understand why, as a GM or an owner, if you have the ability to keep a guy in the minors for an extra couple weeks and therefore keep him for an extra season or get him cheaper for an extra season or whatever, you know, whether it's the 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 Super Two deadline or just that April like the Chris Bryant situation, like you have to do it. It's not like like people are like, oh, they don't have to do it. They could call him up. Like, it's stupid. Right. Like, honestly, calling Chris Bryant up three weeks earlier and losing a year of control wasn't like, oh, that was the right thing. It was just would have been a stupid business decision. Yeah. And so the problem is that I think the Cubs probably would have gotten a bunch of excitement and interest from fans and a really positive vibe out of having him in their opening day lineup. And they could have done that. But it was structured in a way to make that vibe, that that positive experience, those extra ticket sales, not worth it. Right. And, and it's not; it wasn't a bad decision. It was the right decision. It's just a stupid thing that it has to happen. And so I, I wish that, like, I want that to go away. And I, I wish that the, I think the challenge is the owners think it's something that gives them control. And so they think it's a positive thing. And I don't believe it is. I think it's bad for them. I think it it's, makes them I think it's causing them to correctly choose to do things they shouldn't that that are bad for their team and bad for the game but that they have to do because like a year of control is a year of control and it and it matters it has real value we we shouldn't pretend it doesn't so I wish they could find a way to fix that my sense is they're not going to though No I lo- I love the way you put it especially at the end there because like it, they are this it, it's just bad but it does make sense to get that extra year i just it's it's low hanging fruit and it's unfair to compare the sports for many different reasons right but when you look at the other sports like look at the nba how many kids are walking around with you know john morant and lamelo ball even jason tatum jerseys here in boston it feels like jason tatum is 50 years old he's 23 he's been a stud on the celtics for for 4 years now and it 
jersey sales, butts and seats. Their record is imagine the Celtics without Jason Tatum. Oh my god, we're we're a, a, low, a high lottery team. And in baseball, twenty three years old, this would maybe be his debut season, maybe. And like I I get it. It's unfair to compare the sports for lots of different reasons, but it doesn't help baseball that it takes these young stars and kicks them out for the first four to five years of their freaking career. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, and and I do think like there is a lot more of a learning curve going from high school or college baseball. Right, a lot of nuance. Baseball to MLB, then there is like... so I get why, like, I understand why you're not drafting an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old and putting them straight in the majors like you can in the NBA. Sure. Totally get why that why that is. However, everything that causes these teams to delay bringing these guys up for reasons other than they actually are still learning the game is, is bad. And it compounds and, that problem. It, yeah. And to me, again, it's like, Yes, it would be great for these guys to get paid more. I would love for the players to get more money. Like this to me isn't even part of that. It's just actively bad for the growth and development of the game. And it'd be good to get it fixed. Right. Like it's an unavoidable problem that your young stars are going to take longer to get to professional. You make it worse with these rules. Yep, for sure. So with that rant about the CBA out of the way, (laughs) I think we've, we've covered our top 20 outfielders pretty well. Can I throw one name out there, Chad? Oh, yeah. Okay, so I I wanted to make sure I I just found a second to... to, This is a guy who I'm hunting in my drafts, like super late, only in 5 by 5 though. His competition for for playing time is Rugnan Odor and Ramon Urias. Okay, so like if this guy plays well, he will play, and that's Jorge Mateo, who has 80 grade speed. So all this, you know, hullabaloo about stolen bases, this dude could steal 40 bags this year easily. And and he's going, I don't know, pick four thousand nine hundred and fifty-three. So I would I would hunt down Jorge Mateo in my dress. Yeah, he's in the four thousands. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Mateo, that's a it's an interesting call. Um I haven't looked at him. I'll have to take a closer look. But yeah, the, the speed is obviously like we all remember from his his sort of prospect days, the speed's legit. So And he plays he all over the field. Playing time. Yeah. He played, I think, five or six different positions last year. Hmm. Interesting. Good call out for a, a super late sleeper. Right. Yeah, he's not top draft. 20, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, he's your he's your top 20 outfielders among guys going outside the top 300. Top or 400. apparently apparently the top 3,000. So. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we've covered outfield. We've covered outfield all the way from Fernando Tatis and Juan Soto down to Jorge Mateo. That's about as wide a range of outfielders as any podcast is going to cover for you. So I feel pretty good about that. Um, hope you enjoyed the episode. We've got one more preview, right? We haven't done our starting pictures yet. So we got one more preview episode left. Um, we're also going to then want to dive in and, and do some reviews of our, uh, listener league drafts, which one of which is going on right now. The others we're hopefully going to start soon. So lots of good stuff coming up. We got plenty to cover before the start of a hopefully on time season in April. We will find out about that soon. But I hope everyone has a good week and we'll talk to you again soon. 